On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gisenaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid, for now, for now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Adam, I'm going to use your stand, bud. Well, good morning, Westside. The words I have heard Pastor Jason say for so many years, it is an incredible honor just to stand where I am today. Um, I'm looking at your faces because I'm a new face to you for some of you. But the reality is we all come in here together and we're telling a story. And I just want to remind you that we're partaking, partaking in something that's amazing. This isn't just a family dinner. This is a family gathering. This is where a family comes together, not only to do the great things, but to battle together. And so today, I just wanted to say thank you for your team's hospitality, for the food, just everything. Your guys' warm welcome from my wife and our son, Judah. We're stoked to be here, if I could use my language. And so I am just very honored and humbled, but question I want to ask today, and it's a, it's a message I feel like the Lord has honestly placed on my heart many years ago. It's a sermon that I've preached. But when you, when you preach something over and over again, it's always interesting. And you may come to this understanding when you study scripture. You can read the same scripture 15, 500 times. Something always comes out. And that's the Lord's providence. That's his, the Lord's blessing for us and our obedience and digging into our Father's word. But can I just start off by saying God is good. Okay, now, I'm a little COG, so for some of you, God is good. Somebody's got it. One more time. God is good. And all the time? Do you believe that? Because as a congregation, that's what we stand on. God is good. Not when I feel like he's good. He's good even when I'm not. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, I, I say this because I come to you with, with a story on my heart, and I also have a story in Scripture that I'd like to, to read, but I just want to ask you guys if you would join me in a moment, just closing your eyes. And I'd like to pray, but I'd also like to get you guys in a, in a heart position to be able just to hear the Lord's word today. So closing your eyes, I'd ask you guys just to say in your heads, God can always do more. You don't have to say it out loud, but in your head, just say, God can always do more. 
Now I'd like to do this, and now I'd like to lead into prayer that we proclaim, Lord, with these words, what you can do. Lord, people might say, well, Lord, you'll just do whatever you want to do. Lord, your word is very clear that we are empowered by your name. And we set out to do things, Lord, by man's powers are impossible. We need you, Lord. And so, Father, I come as a child to his father's feet, asking for your word to pour over not only me, but, Lord, this entire congregation. I pray for all of the words you're going to speak to us like a father today. Lord, you can always do more. I pray that this message proclaim that. And Lord, I, I pray that we leave here believing that and living that out. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So my life and ministry conviction, if you haven't caught it yet, is simply this. God can always do more. It's going to be one of my big points that I'll say later, but it's something in my message that I just want to reiterate because when we go talk about who God is and what this is and who I am and who my wife is or my son, can I just tell you honestly? It's not about me. I've watched this pulpit. I remember when this pulpit like, got put together, seeing the front of it. That's a proclamation, church. It's all about Jesus. God can always do more. It's not when you feel good and when you go to seminary, then you'll finally get to that point, or maybe you're trying to do something really hard. Listen, today, God's going to meet you right where you're at. He can always do more. That's my conviction. That's my conviction. So you already turned to the book of Luke, but I just want to give you some, some quotes that I think are important because for me, I want to start with a question, and that's simply my sermon title. What's your story? I know it's a question that gets asked a lot around here, but it's, it's something where I felt called to say, what's... What's your story? But isn't that a challenging question? Think about it if you were the one that had to ask the question, just for a moment. What would you say? Who would you include? What people would you include? What background would you give to yourself? Is it where you're from? Is it that you love Taco Bell? Crunch wraps, you know what I'm saying? Is it, is it that you like the Cardinals? Is it that you're from St. Louis? What, what is it about your story? Maybe it's marriage. I think when I, when I think of a story, I think of marriage been married now nine years to my beautiful wife, Megan, and it's always funny when you get to tell the marriage story, right, fellas? Like, she remembers stuff that you don't remember. <laughs> like, she'll call out all your bad features, and I was like, you look so good, and she's like, yeah, you were ugly, and you smelled, and I was like, we have a different retelling of how this goes, but the question goes back to what is your story? When you tell a marriage story, it's always funny. My wife and I, we met at Steak and Shake. Come on. <laughs> I was like, Jason's going with me. Anybody else? We're going to Steak and Shake after this. So we met, but anyway, where, where does your story start? What does it include? And a big thing that I asked you today is, is, is what points do you give God the microphone in your story? Or better worded, what points in your life have you given God the author's pen? Because he's writing a story. And friends, I know you don't know me that well yet, but I will say this. We are being, we are a story being written. There's a final act that needs to come after this. Jason can preach the house down. I know that. But quite frankly, that doesn't mean anything if it doesn't get into your heart. And so the big thing, again, is God can always do more. And so I wanted to just give you guys something, some quotes. that I'm a big quote guy as well, and I just want to give you this. The story of every great Christian achievement is the history of answered 
prayer. Pastor Ian Bounds said that. One more time for those of you that were sleeping. The story of every great Christian achievement is the history of answered prayer. What's your story? That's a question that I'm going to keep going back to today because as much as I'm telling my story, quite frankly, I would like you leaving here asking the same question. What's your story? And you might be saying, where are you headed with this? Very simple. Peter tells us in 2 Peter to be able to give an account for your faith. And so today I'm going to do that, but I just I ask that you would allow me just to welcome you into my life. So with that, with the charge being said of what is your story, let me give some softening. Let me show you the family photo of my crew. What's your story, right? Where do you start? Well, let's start with the family. So you're going to hear a little bit about my upbringing, but right now this is, of course, our this is our crew. This is my wife, Megan, that's our dog, which if you can see, she's a beagle doing what beagles do. And her name is Addie, or we call her Addison for Addie Renee Clark. If you guys are like me, we give our dogs a first name, middle name, last name. Everyone's like, what's your dog's name? I'm like, Addison Renee. And then we have, of course, our beautiful son, Judah Alexander. So that's our crew. That's who we are. And uh, as you can tell, Judah's right around two and a half years old. So I am literally losing my mind. Um, I think of songs like Baby Shark. Right? I just, I'm, I'm over. I'm over with it. I'm done. If, if the power cord would never go find it, uh, you know, we always have a thing with Judah. He says everything's broke. The TV's broke. You know, I'm like, yeah, it's broke. It's broke, all right. But that's our crew. That's our crew. And, and of course, those are my blessings. If I ask you what's your story, would, you, would it include people like this, the closest to you, the people like your wife or your husband or your kids or your dog even or your pet lizard or whatever? But the idea is that it's a story. And so that's a little bit about us as far as a background. But every story has a beginning, doesn't it? you got to think about it. Every story has a beginning. So that's my beginning. But the question I have next is, where's the story going? Or excuse me, where does the story begin? Where does the story actually begin? Because I could tell you that it was about marriage, it's about this, but where does the story begin? It's kind of a loaded question. I know that. I, let, okay, I'm not trying to say it's not. So let me give you a different phrase to the question. Do you remember the first thing Jesus taught you? One more time. What was the first thing Jesus taught you? We heard a sermon earlier, and we're going to retell it here in a moment. The disciples were hearing Jesus speak, and then a miracle happens. It's kind of an interesting question. you got to think for the early disciples, the first thing they saw Jesus do was, God can always do more. That was one of the first lessons that Jesus introduces to them, and that reality is very simple today. It's because it's all about him. So do you remember the first thing Jesus taught you? Now for me, see, I'm 30 years old, and so worship was a huge thing to me coming up as a teenager. You know, worship was just, it was just what it is. And there was a song. I remember my first song that I will say, the Lord taught me something. And it was the song, Mighty to Save. Anyone remember this song? Show of hands, like, <laughs> no, I can't sing worth the lick. Don't worry, I am not here trying to audition to be Adam. But I am saying that that song, there's some lyrics to that song that I'm not joking, and I'll, I'll share this in a little bit. I remember being absolutely helpless. And I mean helpless as a, if you can remember when, when I say helpless as a teenager, you can have people around you, you can have people in your school system that support you, but as a teenager, I don't know what it is, you can feel isolation even though you're in a crowded room of people. 
And that was the reality for me, and I'll explain a little bit of why that is in a little bit. But the first thing that I, I remember from church, when I think about what's the first thing Jesus taught me, I always kind of think back to this song, and people are like, really, bro? That's cheesy. And I'm like, you just got to have been there, man. I don't know how to explain it. The guy was on point. Adam was singing it, that, you know, right in that right note. And this is the words that it that's just kind of poured over me. It was the words mighty to save. It says, everyone, you know what, deal with me. Everyone needs compassion, a love that's never failing. Let mercy fall on me. Everyone needs forgiveness, the kindness of a Savior, the hope of nations. And there's the chorus. Savior, he can move the mountains. My God is mighty to save. Yes, he is mighty to save. Forever, author of salvation, he rose and conquered the grave. Yes, Jesus conquered the grave. That was the first thing the Lord just smacked, gave me a right hook in the most loving way. Because the reality is I had never truly seen a message like what the Bible presents itself as. You see, many of us, we, we see the, the words of that, and you're like, what are, you, what are you exactly trying to teach us? I saw this as an invitation. Everyone needs compassion. Not the ones that are gotten figured out, not the ones that dress the best, good credit score, none of that matters, man. And that's what at 15 years old broke me. But the question comes back to you. What was the first lesson Jesus taught you? See, he taught me very simply, based on the wording of this song, that he is mighty to save. I don't know what you've gone through today. I don't know where you've been. I don't know how old you are. I don't know what you do for work. But I can tell you this right now. I can stand in, com I can stand in, uh, in confidence. Everyone needs compassion. Now, before I go on, I mean, these were words that for me, no, it's not God's word in a song, but I mean, I needed this as much as God's word. This was a father's word to a child. But just remember, the question is, what was the first lesson the Lord taught you? Right? I don't think some of us have this, the telling of Peter where we were just fishing with Jesus one day, man, and we were having a bad day, and then Jason prayed, and then boom, the nets were filled. That's not how some of us come to know Jesus. But for me, it was this, this, this idea that everyone needs compassion. One thing that also it brought up to me was that the Lord wasn't afraid of me. He wasn't afraid to mess with the mess. And that was where my story, I would say, began. It's when the Lord entered into the mess and said, you know what, it doesn't matter, I'm here to get my hands dirty. That's the reality of the God we worship. It's so much larger than just some Sunday attendance and I gave a tithe check. It's so much more. I cannot explain to you. Your story, everyone in this room has a story. And you may not know. To be honest with you, you may not know what the Lord's teaching you. And so today I hope this helps. Because I think one of the things that he found me all the time throughout my teenage years, because I don't know about you, but I was that kid at camp that got saved every year. <laughs> he was mighty to save. And this was something that kind of introduced me into a world, honestly, when I was a teenager. I'll share this in just a moment. But these words, they invited me into a story. And that's kind of where I want to go back to my point of what's your story? What's our story? What's West Side Church and Poplar Bluff's story? By the way, I told folks I was going to come preach at Poplar Bluff. You already know what they called it. 
<laughs> so we're here in popular bluff, everybody. I'm like, all right, yep, we're all popular here, I guess, is what that means. But it invited us into a story. This, this whole thing is a story. I know you may not see, see there's, there's chapters and there's characters and there's a plot, but the reality is there is. You see, this story that we gather in every Sunday, this story that we're partaking in, has an author. He's the author of salvation. And see, the, the reality is, for me, I, I wasn't introduced to church from the childhood baggage, if you're familiar with this terminology. I didn't have the whole, I've got a lot of unload before I can follow Jesus. I didn't even know who Jesus was, dude. I thought he had blue eyes, blonde hair. I really did. I was completely naive to even understanding what the Bible was. But it was songs like this for me. This was the doorway of my heaven. Right here, these words. And it, it caused me as a teenager, no joke, to look at something like this and go, a lot of people talk about this thing. Like, me and Jason, we read books about people that, like, that's all they do. Like, I don't know if they can read, they write. But the reality is, I come to understand that this was meant to be read. Now, here's the interesting part, because some of you are like, here we go again, a, pre, uh, a sermon about God's word. I can tell you if you read God's word, something amazing is going to happen. You know what it is? It will read you. These are convictions that I stand on because this is all I've got. See, in my weakness, he is strong. See, when you're weak, you're going to see in a moment, that's where the story can begin. Because, see, our salvation, there's nothing you can have done for it. I know you, you try really good. You've got ministry groups. You're doing great things, dude. People are coming to know the Lord. But you know, Lynn Ravenhill said this, you know, in the part of Matthew where it says, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. You know what he says? It's powerful. It says, I, doesn't mean I didn't see you. Whoa, right? So there's a difference between seeing Jesus and knowing Jesus. And so anyway, this, let's get back to our story of, of what did he teach you? He taught me his grace. He taught me his, that my salvation was written by him. The Bible, though, is something interesting. It's a story. Did you know that? And no, I am not going to say it's a love letter, even though, yes, it is. But please be cautious when you use that language, because the reality is it's a love letter. Yes, sure. But it's also our history. It's a story, guys. It's 66 books, 40 authors, 1,500 years of compilation. That's a long time. you got to think about what went into it. It's got different genres. When I remember studying Scripture, one of the things that an early teacher taught me was, when you read Scripture, don't just walk in and grab a verse, bro. Grab a story. You go pulling verses out of context, you lose the story. And so for me, the Old Testament, for example, was not this scary you know, most of us, we read the first two pages, right? And then we're good with that. We'll stop in Psalms for a quick moment, give God some praise, and then jump to the New Testament. But the Old Testament is God's saving, powerful grace. You may not see that, but the reality is these authors are proclaiming a relationship with the Almighty God. And it's not just the Almighty God, it's the promises given to Abraham. We see in the early chapters of Genesis. You can read your Bible, and this is an interesting study. If you were just to grab the first few pages of what most people think the Bible's about, they'll grab their first two pages, and they'll grab the last few pages, and they'll say, that's pretty much it, man. I mean, your Bible, so, so, some of you may not know this. You look at the first few words of your Bible, what's it say? In the beginning, right? Some of the last few verses of your Bible, it says, forever and ever, amen. 
I mean, guys, you're holding within your hands the story of God's saving grace. Now, you might be saying, Alex, there's some stuff in the Bible, though, bro. Are you sure you've read some of those Old Testament texts? They get a little crazy. See, the thing is, is I've come to understand, though, my conviction is that it's a story. And in light of those stories, you can see God's saving grace throughout the entire horizon of the story. N.T. Wright says it this way when he talks about the Bible being a story. I love the way he writes this. He's a lot smarter than, than me, for sure. The biblical drama is the heaven and earth story. The story of God and the world, of creation and covenant, of creation spoiled and covenant broken, restored. The New Testament is the book where it all comes in to land like a plane. And it lands in the form of an invitation. This can be and should be your story, my story, and the story which makes sense of us. In other words, what he's saying is if that story doesn't make sense, none of this makes sense. And which restores us to a sense after the nonsense of our lives, the story which breathes hope into a world of chaos and love into cold hearts and lives. Do you see, do you feel like you're holding that story? Now you might be thinking, you gotta speed it up, buddy. I don't know where you're going with all this. Well, the idea is that the Bible is very much a, a calling, not just for a pastoral calling. Disciples. I love that you guys were around here that disciples are making disciples and that sort of thing. Because it's the reality of the New Testament. It had to start somewhere. It didn't just fall out of the sky. And one thing that the, the, the storyline of the Bible tells us is that it is an invitation. Read it throughout the New Testament from beginning to end, and you will see constantly invitation after invitation. More people getting a part of it. Random letters to Paul from Paul. He's including there. Say, say, yo, what up to my boy? Like he's writing in there key people. Because the story is a story, and that's very much what we're continuing to talk about today. But the thing is, is we don't just proclaim a story. What do we proclaim here? And I can almost probably quiz you and you would get it right. What's the first part of your mission statement? We believe, you say your mission statement. We believe the gospel. The gospel is an invitation. It's an invitation that says, I see the world and I'm not afraid of it, but I also see you and I'm going to restore you in the midst of it. A lot of us, we live with an escapist mentality. I'm just going to die and go to heaven, Alex. I don't know why you're worried about renewing this earth. I don't care why you care about the poor. I don't know why you care about none of that, man. The reality is because I'm not trying to run from anything. We have a Savior that's running towards you. And you're going to see in a story momentarily that that is exactly what we're talking about today. But we proclaim the gospel story. Do me a favor. Turn to the first chapter of Luke. Actually, and I want you to do just the first chapter and the first verse. Something I love doing when I preach is just simply reading introduction statements. You maybe never have read the Bible like this, so please just, it's all right. Jason's approved it. But Luke chapter 1, verse 1, I want just to read to you what's in your Bible. Now, I am going to be reading out of the NLT, the New Living Translation. But I just want you to hear, kind of in light of what I've said this morning, everything that I'm trying to, to proclaim. The Gospel of Luke, it starts off by this. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. 
Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I have also decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. It's God's word. It's the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke. Mention I didn't say Gospels. You know, I don't know if you know this, but history was, is kind of interesting. When you look at the foundation of the church, there's not just one story. Just blow some of your brains. Other religions, they don't, they don't, if you try to pull in multiple stories about the same guy, who are you trying to falsify? And this is the interesting part of when we see how they put the Bible together through the years, there was no question that it was God's word. They had Matthew and Mark and the Septuagint at this time, which is a Jewish text. So we see here that we can, we can see the first four verses of Luke. Luke's talking about the Bible already. Maybe, maybe, maybe you didn't catch it. Let me give you verse 2 again. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. And you have an asterisk. You can barely say that word in your Bible. If you look down from the bottom, it'll tell you it's from the early manuscripts of the disciples, being Matthew and Mark. At least that's if you're going to get all contextual criticism and all that fun stuff. But the idea is that it's God's story. Even the early disciples, and you're like, Alex, Luke wasn't, he was an early accompaniment of Paul. But you know what's interesting about Luke? One thing I, I love lo talking about with Luke is that Luke himself was invited to the table. You may not know this, but Luke is the only New Testament writer that's not Jewish. And what's crazy enough, here's some other stuff. He didn't just write Luke's. Luke, he wrote the book of Acts. And if you were to submit that to somebody, they would say, now that's a lot of words. So many words per se. 27% of the New Testament was written by Luke. Again, the storyline of the Bible, it's a bunch of, starts with ancient Israel's promise, right? But what do we see? We see a Jew come on the scene in Nazarene. And we see this story where people are wanting to know about him. They're hearing about him. you got to think, one thing I love when I studied this was Theophilus didn't have God's word necessarily in his heart. He was simply hearing God's voice. He was still hearing from the disciples. He was still getting that secondhand ability to say, well, now, we got this that's said over here, but what about these crazy things that we heard Jesus say? Oh, because if you've ever read the book of Luke, Luke adds some dialogue, and you're like, what? Excuse me, sir, why are you grabbing the microphone from Mark? And the reality is, is that Luke, I think, has, a, has an ability as an author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to, tell, to show us something. And that's this. God can always do more. Look at multiple stories throughout Luke, and we're going to look at one here in just a moment. But the story opens up as an invitation. Theophilus, guys, we don't know much a lick about this guy. Could have been a Roman soldier. Not a Jew, but just that he wrote a book to the Honorable Theophilus. It's going to take some study this week for you to go look that up. Because these are things that your, your Bible, this is not just to scare you and say that your Bible's man-made. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm telling you that it's a story inspired by the Holy Spirit and that he's working through us and it's evident and it jumps off the page. The first chapter of your Bible, I know we read this and we're doing a Bible plan, and this is day one, and you're like, I just need to read the first few verses, and then you're just ready to get to the good stuff. Friends, this is the good stuff. Verse ones are where it's all at in my preaching. 
Because I believe that the author knows when they set out to be inspired by the Spirit that, that God is using them to tell a story. Stories have to connect. Stories have to make sense. They have to have characters. There has to be a plot, and there has to be a setting. So all these things are leading us to, to understand that Luke, the one that's going to lead us into our main text today, is an outsider. Seeing the early ministry of Paul, you can imagine what that was like, where revivals were breaking out. For some of us in the evangelical world in the West, it's hard for us to even ma- imagine the amount of turning to Jesus that other countries are seeing even right now. We don't have room enough for the people that see Jesus and run to him. So it's been an invitation. Some of Luke's convictions, I want to get these, I want to get these stated. Luke connects these eyewitness accounts to those around him. Luke sees the Jesus story as the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. The promise is given to Abraham that God would, since he tried to create a good creation with Adam and Eve, they failed. There's nothing we can do. Adam and Eve, they failed, right? You may know the Bible in five moving acts. It's creation, sin, or excuse me, creation, fall. You have Jesus, the church, and you have the Holy Spirit. Like you'll see the story of the Bible, but the reality is, is that it's an Old Testament fulfillment. Now you might be thinking, Old Testament, that's about like sacrificing lambs and whatnot and blood and all that stuff, right? No, friends. The reality is when you read the first few pages of your Bible, you simply see that it is God communing with man. That's his number one goal. Again, read the first few pages of your Bible. You will be convinced that you're staring at a God that wants to just have a relationship with you. But the reality is that story tells us is that we have a hard time seeing the idols even in our own lives. And so much so in the replace of of idols, we forfeit our salvation. We forfeit love. We forfeit the ability to lean on God. When, when, you create, when you set out to create your own definition of right and wrong, that's idolatry. So when we read the story, we read the story that starts off not too good, right? And you're like, Alex, I don't know what you read, man. You'll see kings, prophets. We'll see the Psalms. We'll see all of these amazing things of God's word in the Old Testament. But one scholar, he says it this way, is the Old Testament leaves like a hemmed garment waiting to be finished. I don't knit much, but hopefully that makes sense to you knitters out there, that you can pick up with where it left off and continue the woven project of this big tapestry that's being written called the Bible. It's a pretty incredible story when you think about it from the author's eyes of what he was trying to say. He knew there was other gospels. It wasn't that he was trying to say his gospel was better than any others. He, I think, has a, a point to, come, to state that God can always do more. So here's what I want to do. I want to jump back to Luke, and I just want to show you a story of essentially this, that we proclaim the gospel story. And so we see how the gospel actually starts. We see that it's actual people talking about Jesus. Oh, what a crazy idea, right? Getting together and actually talking about Jesus, not just doing our own Bible studies and stuff like that. And we see that it causes this Theophilus, he, he's got money, if you don't know this. <laughs> the one thing we do know about him, he's probably got some straight cash. Because you don't just create out to make an eyewitness account of stuff in ancient time. Writing was super expensive, it just took time. Anyway, not the normal person could do it. But I say it because we see it as a story. And Luke goes on to tell us a story that's so much of an invitation. I'm convinced that it's an invitation for not only me, but for you. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5, our main text. 
And I just want to retell the story only because it's such an important story for, for me when I first read it. The other Gospels, they don't have the same calling in the same way. And it made me ask myself, what, what exactly is, is Luke trying to do here? Because the story, quite honestly, is weird. Can I just say that before I preach it? It's weird. And you'll see why in a moment. But it's one of those things where I ask us, are we more like Peter? Are we more like them than we realize? Because I know about you and me, right? We see Thomas, right? Wouldn't it stink to have the name Doubting Thomas? Right? Like those are terms and you're like, Simon, oh yeah, Simon Peter, he doubted. Yep, he denied Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like those are not fun. Some of the disciples don't have much about him either. It's like, were they just not that good, right? But the idea is that some of the early disciples, we see their calling as an invitation. And this is an invitation not only to God's people, but hear me, Luke is going to set out to invite the outcast. And look how he does it. Join with me in Luke 5, verse 1 on this one. And again, this is the NLT that I'll be reading from. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee near his hometown, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon, its owner, to push it out into the water. So he sat in the boat and taught the crowds from there. Let me stop for a moment. So we have Jesus and we have Peter. They're fishing. You can just imagine the smell going on, right? No? I love fishing, but I don't know what it is about scale. I don't know. I'm a little bit of a wimp in that regard. But you can imagine, this is a man's day. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is a man's day. They're doing man things. They're also working. We know this about, of course, with their profession. They were working. And we can see that Jesus is, is, is there, period. Ancient Israel, he's there, he's on the scene, and he is hanging out with just people, and they're listening to what he's saying. So a lot of scholars would say that he's teaching the Beatitudes at this time. That was kind of like his song, tra- song uh, soundtrack for the road, was the Beatitudes. So you've got to think, like, this is, this is where Peter's story, I would say, starts. Peter's story starts in Luke in his day-to-day job. I don't know about you, but when I first started coming to church, I was like, I thought it was the preacher's job. Like, I thought it was your job to do everything. Then you read stories like this, you're like, wait a minute. That involves a day job. That involves people that you're, you know, your coworkers. That involves people that are watching you work. The young ones in the community were watching them work. These are, this is an interesting scene to, to proclaim that this is just Jesus with people. At this time, they're not the great disciples, right? They're just a bunch of lowly fishermen. They're a bunch of outcasts, quite frankly. And one thing I love, if you've seen the Chosen series, I don't know if you guys are a big fan of the Chosen series, they do an interesting job in this story. If you've seen the Chosen story with Peter, or with Simon Peter, he almost seems like he's a conflicted man that he has debts to pay and he's not able to pay it. They kind of read into some language there. But it gives you insight into who Peter was, what he was dealing with when he has a bad day. We all have bad days. But this Luke is giving us an insight into the story that it's, it's more than your bad days that, that's going on in Scripture. And we'll see in a moment that this is, this is the invitation. This is where it starts, right here. The invitation starts in your day-to-day. It doesn't start on Sunday. I know many of us, we can get fired up on a Sunday, dude. I'm one of them. Then Monday comes, you got to clock into work, right? Tuesday, Wednesday. Friday ain't here yet, Thursday. You know what I'm saying? We all live these lives. I promise you, I'm right there with you. And the reality is, is that disappointments don't have to be too far away to feel really heavy. And so Peter's faced with a disappointment. I don't know about your story, but especially the story of the Bible is disappointment. Well, you, were, you had it, man. 
God was dwelling with people, and then you messed it up. So how does God deal with disappointments? And it's kind of a big part of my story, honestly, is how do we deal with the disappointments? How do you deal with those things? Well, here's what I'd like to first proclaim to you. One is the, the, the story is going to get interesting in a moment. But where does the, the fire start? That's one of my next questions I'd like to ask the church today. So where does the fire start? Like Peter, he's, he's on his day-to-day job, and you're going to see here in a moment, where something begins anew for Peter. I don't know about you, when I hear the words fire, you're like, bro, call the fire department. What are you talking about? I'm talking about a different fire. I'm talking about a fire that only the Lord could birth within you. And quite frankly, I don't know all of your histories, but I will say that many of us, we had to go through some stuff for that Lord to light the fire. I mean, many of us, I would love to say it was you know, Missouri Youth Fellowship, you know, youth conferences or Camp Sharon's or I wish I could. But when you come back from those, I remember as a teenager, I was like, that just, some wind came by and that flame went right out. You know what I'm saying? So where'd the fire start? My fire started in disappointment. And I don't know about you, but that's good news in the church to know that Jesus is right there meeting me in those disappointments. So where's my disappointment? Where's all this? Where am I going with all this? Well, I'd like to just tell you one, that we all have a Jesus story. So when I say we have a fire story, I really should probably word it, where did the Jesus story in your life start? Because, see, I personally live with a conviction that the story of Jesus is being lived out through us. It just matters if we're listening or not. He wants to do it. It's not just Jason's jobs, not just Matt's or Nikki's. Or, no, we can all do it. Where's my teenagers at? To show of hands if you're, under the, if you're under the age of 18 and like above, like, I don't know, 12. So, I guess some shorter hands for those young kids. Like, I'm trying, bro. <laughs> I'm talking to you. This isn't for, I'm, I mean, I'm talking to the adults too, but, but for teenagers in the room, like, I'm talking about this was me. It can start as a teenager. I know you got homework to do. I know you've got like a curfew and all this other stuff. Listen, you can be a disciple of Jesus and a fire can start in you and then you can go have a conversation with your dad or your grandpa and that's how it works and that's the beauty of the gospel. It doesn't have to always come from the pulpit. So where does my fire start with that all being said? I will say this. There's some key things in my life that have led me to the fire, if you will. Some of them is this. I didn't grow up, of course, in church. So when I was a teenager, my parents had a jewelry store in Florida. We were living in sunny South Florida. Woo! Beaches on that side of the Atlantic side, they're just, they're something else. My dad wanted to open up a jewelry store. He had a really successful career in real estate in St. Louis. Worked for TWA. Yeah, right? Moved us from St. Louis all the way down to sunny Florida to open up a jewelry store. I was 14, well, 13, 14 years old at this time. And something interesting happens in my parents' lives. Two words. You ready for this? They were jewelers. Two words. Insurance fraud. Over $100,000. Now, you have to probably be in law enforcement to understand the second half of that. Because anything over $100,000 means now the FBI is involved. And so that was the disappointment for me. It was in 2008 where both of my parents, they ran this jewelry store. They used my mom's name for the business, Wendelin's Jewelers. And I'm not telling you to do this, but sadly, you can still Google some of this. It's real. Insurance fraud. I was 15 years old by the time my parents' trials came around. 
is $134,000, by the way. I say that because when I say over 100, you're like, it must have been like 100 million. $134,000. My dad was given 15 years, first of all, seven years probation. Of course, you do good time, you only do 85%. So he did 12 and a half years. My mom was 50 years old when they convicted her to 10 years in prison. She had just celebrated her 50th birthday, the golden years. I remember being there at her trial. And, of course, I don't know why. I don't know if you ever let your kids into this. I would never, now being a parent. But I remember the judge asked me, what do you have to say? Like, they legit gave me an opportunity to, like, speak on behalf. I'm this overweight, chubby 14-year-old. Like, <laughs> I said, don't take my mom. What else do you say as a teenager, right? Now, there was some stuff with my dad, but regardless, my mom was my rock at that time. Don't, don't, don't take my mom. Don't, don't take the one thing that I need. I don't know about you, but I was a mama's boy. My mom had this whole thing about mama, like bear hugs, and like, dude, I hug my mom so hard. I don't know, it's weird. I'm like, come here. She's an old lady, you know, I'm like, I gotta be careful. But the thing is, is, is that story, now granted, I will say that, that they did serve their full sentence. And throughout all of that, here's the crazy part. I found Jesus. No joke, here's what happened. So here we are in Florida, two parents in prison with a 15-year-old. I do have a five-and-a-half-year-old, or five-and-a-half-year-older brother. Doesn't make enough money to take care of me. So legit, we're thinking, like, Child Protective Services are coming. We're, like, kind of worried. Like, we don't have a plan for young little Alex. He just got his permit. And so my grandparents take me in, in Springfield, Missouri, home of Bass Pro. <laughs> and for me, friends, that literally was where my fire started. It was in the midst of all of that disappointment and chaos that some voice, and it was the, he is mighty to save. It was that voice that found me. It says, Alex, I can always do more. Now, I don't know about you, but we'll get back to the story here in a moment, but what do you do when you see disappointments? Because for me, where's the fire start? You might be thinking, man, I'm just waiting for my day, man. I think many of us in here today are already thinking about that fire. When did it start? It didn't start on a Sunday service when you were feeling good and praising the Lord. No, it felt like when you were on your knees crying and you can't even come up with words. That's where fires can start, friends. I'm sorry, but we live in a world today where everyone wants to be the religious puff-ups. I'm done with that. I want fire-hearted people that love Jesus. That's what this world needs. We love preaching, sure, but we want it into you. It doesn't mean anything if it's not going any farther than your Facebook wall. So let's see how this story continues. Where is the story going, right? That's my next question, because the Bible tells us a story, gives you an opportunity to see it as an invitation, and then it says, okay, well, what are we going to do now? Now that you see the invitation. So join with me really quick. We're going to jump back, actually, to uh, verse 4. We're going to kind of see how that story ends. I'm going to make sure to get that story out. But where is the story going? Chris Kugler, real quick before I read the scriptures, Chris Kugler, a, a, a quote that he says, it's a beautiful quote. It says this, church is a place where we tell the big story. We preach the big story. We pray within and into the big story. 
We sing about the big story, and we invite others into the big story. And it's especially a place where we're asking all the time if our church and our community is like this, and we know that God's new world is going to be like that, how can we make this a little more like that? In other words, we see God's doing amazing things. How can I be a part of it? He goes on to say, and we don't just believe it. We try it. He goes on to say this. The Bible asks each of us, what kind of character are you going to be? What role are you going to play? And based upon the story so far, where do you think this whole thing is headed? And here's the catch, church. And how are you going to help ensure it gets there? Gospel community mission. It's not just Jason's job to figure out. It's all of you. It's all of us. So where's the story headed? What kind of role are you going to play? Let's see what happens to the early disciples and see how they respond to this interesting calling. Picks back up in verse 5. Or excuse me, verse 4. Luke 5, 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Now go out where it is deeper and let your nets, to ca- let's nets down to catch some fish. Master Simon replied, We have worked hard all night and didn't catch a single thing. But if you say so, I'll let the nets down again. And this time their nets were so full of fish they began to tear in a boat, and soon others were both filled with fish on the verge of sinking. And pay attention, church. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his feet. He fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord, please leave me. Some translations say, Depart from me. For I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. And look at how Jesus ends this whole amazing Jesus is teaching, he's preaching. Then there's Peter. Oh, Peter, right? That's what I always like to say when I come across him. Like, he's just the most, he's just the gung-ho guy. Full of emotion. In the midst of a miracle, finds himself without any hope, and says, Lord, I'm a sinful man. There's no way I should be seeing what I'm seeing. One scholar put it this way, that heaven had come too low that day for Peter. It was too much. Lord, if you're, if you're really the story of Israel, come fulfilled. If you're really who you say you are, there is no way that I, that just, no. How many times do we do this? We see the Lord do amazing things, and I'm going to share in a moment. We'll see the Lord do amazing things through your family, through your friends, and parents where you at, through your kids' lives. The Lord is doing some things, but the reality is we've got to kind of look a little deeper because we see Peter finding himself convicted. This is an interesting story to me, friends. I told you it's an odd story. Many times we see the calling of the disciples and Jesus preaches, they accept the call, and it's gung-ho from there. Luke has an interesting perspective here. I think Spurgeon once said, this is a poor prayer. (laughs) What? Heaven had come too low that day. Man, the times I have said those things in my story. See, I'm I'm just a normal statistic like you, right? We've all got statistics we cling to. I remember growing up being like, there's no way. There's no way that the Lord's gonna take both parents away and all of this other stuff. I just remember saying that there's just no way. What do you do when disappointments happen? 
Because, see, I think there's a, there's a reality shift for most of us in this room today. There's a reality shift. And I think it is, it's just truly following Jesus. And if, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then I, I'm going to give you some reassurance today. The way of life for a disciple involves suffering and struggles. The, hear what I said? The way of life of a disciple involves suffering and struggles. That's what this story comes speaking out to the page. You might be thinking, they were, they were feeding 5,000s and they were... You remember that time, though, you saw something too. And you're like, that was the Lord, right? And then you go into your day-to-day job. Maybe it's a family situation that you're constantly praying for. Whatever it is, you think the Lord, why is the Lord making me suffer? Paul even says that I had a thorn in my side that I prayed the Lord would take away. But in my weakness, I realized something. He's my strength. He's my hope. The way of life for a disciple is suffering and struggling. You might be thinking, where do you get this conviction? Let me read you one of my favorite life, like life verses, if you call it that. It's Luke 9, 23 and 24. And he said to all, if anyone who come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Verse 24, more importantly, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And we'll save it. I love it. Romans 8.16 says this as well. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And look what the, the author of Romans, Paul says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. This is Paul. This is Apostle Paul. 13 letters of the New Testament, that guy, the one that was there when they stoned Stephen, that Paul, that's the guy. And he just got done telling you as disciples today something that I promise and I hope to pray that you take me serious on. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You may not know what the word glory means. In Hebrew, it's kavod, or Greek be kavod, heaviness. I think of the old dudes who are like, that's heavy, bro. Well, it's a, kind of a good understanding of it, actually. But that's the glory of God. When it comes in, it's heavy. It's heavy. Because the way of the disciple is not sunshines and rainbows. In fact, quite honestly, it's a lot of days where you come up short and you find yourself at the feet of Jesus. But what does he tell them at the feet? Of, at the feet? What does he say? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I've got some questions that I'd like to end with, and these questions will lead me into my final, uh, final point, and I probably should be done soon. I didn't see the time. But some three questions that, I, that I'd have that I think are, are going to help us. And this first one is this. Questions for the sufferer. This is questions I think that Peter would, would allow us to into his life to see. What do you need to let go of so you can embrace what's ahead? What do you need to let go of so you can embrace what's ahead? 
See, Jesus' presence welcomes power into the story. Do you see that just his presence alone was enough to speak power into the situation? What was the powerful moments in the scripture? Was it when they filled the nets? Nope. Where's the miracle in the story? You tell me, church. It's when Jesus finds a guy that says, do not be afraid. See, we get our eyes on the wrong subject sometimes in Scripture. We don't realize that it's still about Jesus. It's about fish. It's about catch. It's about money. It's about... Nope. What do you need to let go of so you can embrace what's ahead? We know this, that Peter goes on to be given a name called Peter, the rock of the church, Petros. You're Peter, you're the rock of the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Peter was given a new life when he sees this. You've got to think he once was seeing suffering one day and sees the Savior the next. It's a pretty awesome life, if you ask me. But that's one question I think that I'd like to submit to you today for you to think about. It's what you need to let go of so you can embrace what's ahead. The second thing, and I hope I have them in order here, and that's what if life's interruptions are God's interceptions? What if, one more time, if life's interruptions are God's interceptions? I'd like to share with you just another quick story. I've got this and then one more point. God can always do more. Remember I said that? You know, I, I, the Lord kind of gave me this second point. And um, what if life's interruptions, because that's what they are, that's what they feel like in the moment, what if they're actually God's interceptions to speak more grace into your life? See, for us, me and my wife, we're, we've been together nine years, and, and we had tried having a baby for seven years. I like to joke, and I know this is Family Sunday, so I'm not going to say what I normally say, but I'm just going to say we were trying, Okay. For seven years, married, you know, eight years at the time, seven years at the time, we had waited and waited and waited. And I remember it was before an MYF a few years back, Megan was like, hey, come home. I want, you to, I want you to see something, which, of course, after you've been married seven years, fellas, you're not like, oh, it could be what I think it is. You're just like, oh, whatever, right? Come home. My wife's like, going to the bathroom. I'm like, this is weird. Anyway, she's gotten two tests on the counter. We are pregnant with our baby boy. God can always do more. Seven years actively trying. Now, some, some of you I know in this room, you're still trying, and I'm praying for you. But I want you to know that you are not alone. Okay? For seven years, we prayed, and we prayed. And no joke, she said, Megan said, when she found out herself, our dog was freaked out. Because <laughs> I wasn't home yet. You, gotta know, you know what I'm saying? So, like, this idea is that we found out we're pregnant, and the dog is scared. Do not be afraid, Right? <laughs> But the idea is that, that, that the Lord had done something amazing in our lives. And we thought that was a victory. And, and, of course, you'll see in a moment, I come back to the question, what if life's interruptions are God's interceptions? Because, see, we were six months in. This was, we had a COVID baby. For those of you that have had a COVID baby, man, I want to talk to you. I want to give you a hug, for real. But our, our, we had some, some gender appointments, whatever they're called, right, in March of 2020. So just zoom back with me, March 2020. I know we don't like going there. But nonetheless, I was going to appointments. Only one person was allowed in at these appointments. Of course, you couldn't go in with multiple people. So for the gender reveal, I found out at home because the doctor had to write it on a letter because I couldn't be there. We couldn't be. I remember FaceTiming and being in there when she got. But anyway, long story short, we weren't able to be there for that. It's an interruption. Okay, fine. Not even two weeks later. I'm working from home at the time. I did, I'm doing insurance. And, I, and my wife's, of course, six months pregnant, and she says, Alex, I'm just not feeling that good. And so I'm like, well, can it wait till 5 o'clock? I've got to work. 
So naive, guys, so naive. And so no joke, about 5.05, 5.06, I feel like it was right around the time we got in the car and we drove, and I drove so fast to the hospital because Megan had said, Alex, something's wrong. No husband wants to hear that from his pregnant wife. Something's wrong. Again, interruption. I drove so fast. I've never felt more holy driving as fast as I did. I don't know how to explain it. I wasn't like weaving. It was just the, the pedal of the floor. It was just way too hard for too long. Anyway, we got to the hospital in no time. Couldn't, be, couldn't go in, right? Remember I told you that part? Couldn't go into, she wasn't actively in labor. So she didn't need a support person. She didn't, anything like that. Well, lo and behold, she gets not only about 40 yards into the actual uh, hospital. They have to check her temp. She's in labor. And they're like, hey, come here real quick. Check your temperature. Here's your sticker. She's in labor, dude. We don't know this at the time. They bring her into the room, room 18. There's two different types of rooms in a hospital for me that I've noticed. The back room and the front room where you don't realize it's even there. Because they're like, find room 18. She's in room 18. What are you talking about? So my wife calls me. She gets into this room. She calls me and says, Alex, he's coming. I was just going to Dunkin' Donuts. I didn't know what else to do. So I whip around, walk in, and they say, find room 18. And I'm looking around. They're like, 18? They're like, 18? There's no 18. There's room 118. Right? I'm like, no, they said 18. And so anyway, long story short, I find the room. So much commotion. In this little closet, there is my wife with 15 nurses and doctors around her. You can imagine the scene. So here we are, room 18. All of a sudden, they say, all right, baby's breached. Come with his legs first. So for some of you that understand when his legs are breached, what does that mean? Got to come. Baby's got to come. Interruption. Big interruption. We had waited seven years. We are six months pregnant. For some of you that want to know some numbers, we were 24, day, 24 weeks, five days gestation. 24 and five. Now, some of you are like, what's vi- I don't even know what viable means, bro. Just know that that's, that's riding the line. It's riding the line. And, and, of course, science has come a long way, and, of course, I'm, I'm naive to any of this, right? All I, I, could, I would have to share another sermon to give you the details of I was in the, op- I was in the room when he was born. And I, I could tell you stories about they were counting. <laughs> Baby wasn't breathing those whole entire time. The doctors, they had to work. It was incredible. His name is Dr. Brownsworth. I almost thought about showing a photo of him, but his, his man, he wouldn't have, you would have been like, but he was the most calm-hearted person in the midst of that craziness. God used him. I'm not joking. This doctor was every bit of 5'4", and he's like, Mr. Clark, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this little cord, and he told me exactly, and I'm not joking you when I tell you that whenever that, that, that all happened, of course, like because it was a C-section, all that craziness, but long story short, that's exactly how it went down. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. They actually had to find a smaller tube even because the tube they had originally got was like a half gauge too big or something like that. So they were kind of scrambling to figure out. And all the while, they're counting. Babies don't breathe at 24 weeks, guys. They don't have eyes yet. They don't have lungs. They don't have stomachs. I mean, quite frankly, they're not done growing. I'm looking at a baby right now, like sleeping. You know what I'm saying? Like, there, babies have so much growth in the womb, it's unreal. I know I'm, I'm, it's my first child, and I'm like, what am I to say this, right? But I will tell you, the doctors showed us so much through this little one-pound, 13-ounce baby. One-pound, 13 ounces. I was going to bring a size of his diaper. I will probably, if I'm welcome back. But the micro-preemie diaper, 
is no joke, no, longer, no larger than a credit card, what he wore on his butt. And not only that, we had to fold it because it was too big. We're talking a baby. You see baby dolls. I'm, just, I'm not trying to scare some of you, and I'm also trying to be sensitive to those in the room that don't have a story as a similar outcome. Guys, this is a reality. One in ten babies are born premature. So this is not something where some of you are like, all the men in the room are like, bro, what are you talking about? Ladies, I know this is real. Like, this is, this is stuff that no guy wants to talk about. But the Bible will be honest, and it will face these things and say, that might look like an interruption. But you're going to hear me say in a moment, through this one-pound baby, through 116 days in the NICU, so many terms, dude, so many random terms that we had to learn. Imagine the alarms. We got some photos, don't we? Yeah, let's show them some photos of some of the first uh, interruptions, we would call it that. But then I'll slowly give you this. The Lord started to work, started to work through him. He couldn't even talk yet. But I wanted to give you some perspective. These machines, all of these, this was his oxygen machine there. The, all of these things, if this wasn't, of course, at the right area, it would beep. This one was annoying because it would always mess. And it was just, it was just, it was dumb. But, but all these others, you got to think, this is Judah. He's actually tied down because if he moves, if, some of you know this, like if babies are, dude, they could box. Like my son got the nickname, I am Groot, because like he was straight up like little baby Groot, like I am Groot. And he would knock out. Two times he had what's called extubations. Let's show him a photo of that one. Um, the extubations, those were fun. For those of you that know what this is, huge interruption into the growth process of a baby. Again, all while me and my wife for every day after work, we're just coming to the hospital and hanging out for 116 days. And of course, this was about May. I think I had some of these down here. You had gotten to hold him about a month. No, three weeks. It was three weeks after he was born. My wife finally got to hold her baby son. Now, you don't know this, and I'm trying to speak as quick as I can, but still keeping the story together here. You know how much effort it took to transfer a baby that's intubated? Not on oxygen support. Please be, hear me what I'm saying. They were intubated and moving it to Megan. Literally, our, our nurse was like, her, her, our nurse's name was Megan as well. There's a lot of weird little overlaps. It was like, God, you're cool. And I remember her saying, like, Megan, you're holding today. They're like, what? And so no joke, they're like, yeah, well, if something happens, like, you know, we'll have these nurses come and help us, long story short. Guess what? You saw the picture before? We did have two extubations. Some of you don't know what that means, and I'm thankful for that. Because if you see those little cord in the emergency rooms or wherever, those little cords that are just hanging the wall with a little plug, you try to keep your kid from pulling it off, we had to pull those twice. Because when you fling... That, that oxygen tube has to be so close. It has to be right in the right area. That, before, if you saw that, guys, that was actually an x-ray machine because when they intubate the baby again, they have to make sure they don't push it down too far and cause damage. We had waited seven years to have a child. Don't forget that detail in this story. I had been following Jesus. I was a pastor in a church at the time. We were supposed to be the holier-than-ows people. Psalm 28, 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. Psalm 55. But I will call on God and the Lord will rescue me. Morning, noon, and night I cry out in my distress and the Lord hears my voice. One more. Psalm 34. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. 
And I love this part. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fears them, fears him and delivers them. He delivers us. So what can God do with these disappointments? You have to surrender. You have to surrender. That's very much where Peter finds himself at the end of the story. Jesus tells him, don't be afraid. And it's in those moments, friends, when you hear don't be afraid, that the miracle actually happens. It's when the miracle happens. See, maybe some of you, you see a car seat, and you're like, that means you're going home, right? Ask me when I put the car seat in my car. I can tell you this, I'm not proud of this, it was before July 4th. Because I remember July 4th weekend, getting pulled over. Didn't get a ticket, praise God. But I can tell you this, that she looked, there was a female police officer, she pulled me over, and I was like, I'm just trying to come home. We were coming home late for the hospital. I told her that. The car seat was already in the back of my car July 4th. So, born April 16th, goes through four months in the NICU. We have to transfer hospitals. Of course, he, he's still on oxygen. Transfer hospitals. This car seat finally comes in the door with us, which if you know when you bring a car seat in when you have a baby, it's finally like, hallelujah. It means they're going home. For many, many months, we saw other people walking in with this. We just had to smile and act like it was okay. But what about, when's it our turn? And so this day was right after he had surgery. They had to intubate him again. This was, this was chaotic words for me and my wife to hear. We're going to intubate him again for surgery. What was the last three months? What were we just doing for the last three months? I thought his lungs were working now. They're getting better, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, what happened after that surgery? By the time he got back to his room, what do you think was already done? What's the title of, what's the second part of my message, essentially? God can always do more. What do you think happened? When we got back to the ho- that, that, I almost said hotel room, hospital room, they're like, oh, yeah, no, he was, we already extubated him out in surgery room. Now, see, that didn't land like I was hoping because you don't realize me and my wife were thinking, here we go again. Because if you know anything about the human body, guys, it's fragile. Like this is, we're talking about little babies here, like lungs and hearts. And I know for you and me, it's like my brain can't comprehend it. Me either, dude. But here's the thing. We serve a God that can. And he can always do more. And almost crazy enough to think, two years later, now you can show him the final photo is this. This is now what I deal with. So God can always do more. Amen. And this is just a story and a testament to where, for me, this is where my story's brought me. I remember where my story was, where it's going. I've seen God do some incredible things. I say this every day I wake up when my son says, Dad, Dad, I get to see the face of God. He reminds me every day that God can always do more. So my last thing here, of course, is what if your response to your present suffering isn't to fight but to surrender? Because I think that's where we can find true victory. I'm going to close with 1 Peter, and I'm just going to close with some words. The same Peter that we see getting called on the seas of Galilee. I want you to, to hear what he says in his letter. 1 Peter chapter chapter 1, verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again. 
Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, now we live with great expectation. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. And here's my last thing I'd like to tell you all. And this is almost my closing words to you. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while, these trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong, though through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. And here's the last part. You love him even though you've never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him. Where was that? The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Some of you today feel like gold right now being purified. We're not talking about gold, but I just want you guys to see that God can always do more. Just because there's fire present doesn't mean that anything will be destroyed. In fact, it can be renewed. So here's my last thing, and that's are you in? That's my call, and I think the call is a great transition into communion of, of are you in? I know this story was a little all over the place. We have Peter's calling on the side of the Sea of Galilee, a little bit about me, but please remember, God can always do more, and he does it at the table. See, at the table of the cross, we're able to see that Jesus says that our, his body was broken. By his wounds, Isaiah says, we're healed. These, all these scriptures that God gives you as his word are meant to help you and to remind you that he can always do more. So are you in? You don't got to bring anything to the table. Simply an eager heart is all that he's looking for. Would you join me in a quick prayer? Lord, I just thank you so much for just your word, and I just pray that... We would be reminded that you can always do more. That, Lord, through everyone's story in this room, we all have a story. We could all get up on stage and show the amazing things you've done in our lives. But, Lord, I just pray that you would remind us that you can always do more. That we believe in you even though we don't believe in ourselves. That all we do is see chaos. Lord, we can see the one who calms the storm. Lord, I'm just honored to share with with this group, the things you've done in my life. Lord, I'm just a little kid saved by grace. I'm nothing without you. But Lord, I'm so thankful that I have you. No, I don't deserve it. But Lord, you give it undeniably. So Lord, I just pray that we would come to you and worship right now, that we believe that you can do more. Whatever it is in this room, Lord, you can do more. And we believe that today and we proclaim that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.